July 4th, you haven't set off any fireworks yet. You might be about that point where you're regretting the third hot dog that you're still trying to get down. You started eating it because you convinced yourself it's a holiday, calories are like half off, you'll work it off later. In the midst of that, getting the mustard and ketchup off of your face, you hear that annoying screeching sound that we've all come to identify with an amber alert or a severe weather alert. Cell phones are going off all around. Now, we all know we're way too spiritual for any of us to actually have our cell phones out at a family gathering, but let's just imagine there were a few people who had their faces uh, in their phones rather than talking to real people around them. I know, hypothetical. But they're doing that, and you recognize by their facial expression that this is not an Amber Alert. You recognize by their facial expression that this is not something having to do with severe weather. You recognize by the fact that their jaw drops and there's this gasp and their eyes get wide that something much more significant is taking place. So, of course, you grab your phone and you see the alert. And that alert prompts you, of course, to to begin searching to see if this alert is in fact true. So you run to wherever your source is for news and information, be that social media, be it some cable network, uh, website, whatever the case may be. And sure enough, you come to find out it is true. There is one who has this very day the audacity to claim his authority as king over the entire world. He didn't campaign. He didn't run on a platform of liberalism or conservatism. He wasn't elected. He has no term limits. He has not guaranteed your right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He has simply said, I am king over all the earth. Now, why do I give you that illustration. Well, because when I have my nice Sunday morning thinking cap on, I read Psalm 100 and I go, yeah, that's great. Yeah, get them. You know, I'm there. (laughs) But when I have my not Sunday thinking cap on, And I hear this declaration in Psalm 100, there is inside of me a a little bit of pushback. Wait a second. There is a God who rules over all the earth and He is commanding... Did you see all those imperatives in there? He is commanding worship from me. And He's not just commanding worship from me, but He's commanding that I do it with gladness. (laughs) That I enter His presence with singing. I don't sing into anybody's presence. Generally, that's because they leave if I enter their presence with singing. But nonetheless, He's commanding these things of me. This psalm is incredibly simple in its layout. The truths that are given here are very Very simple, but incredibly profound. You have a list of imperatives in verses 1 and 2, and there's actually an imperative at the beginning of verse 3 that is followed up by a reason. And then after that reason is given, you have more imperatives that are then followed up by a final reason. 
And the first reason given for this command to make a joyful noise, to serve the Lord with gladness, to come into His presence with singing is right there in verse 3 and it says, Know that the Lord, He is God. Now in the psalmist day and time, that would have been a profound thing. A single God, ruler over all things, that was not the popular way of thinking. No, there were lots of gods. You kind of picked and choose the God that you liked, the one that would serve you best. You worship different gods, but one God to rule all nations? One God that, 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 that was big enough to, to control all of creation and all peoples and was great enough to be worthy of the worship of all people? Many of the gods in that day and time were just simply like Marvel superheroes. They were very flawed, but they had more power than you, so you were stuck worshiping them. It was kind of a love-hate relationship. And in the midst of that, the psalmist breaks forth and calls the entire world to recognize, yet to worship the one true God. Now, okay, I know, you're sitting there and already you're going, okay, <clears throat> we know Justin is gone, we're, we're on B level here, but do you realize, Flintoff, you're talking to a bunch of people who are in a church building on Sunday morning and you're going on about the fact that there's a God. <clears throat> um, we're probably already convinced. In fact, even as a culture, we think, oh, we've moved way beyond this. I mean, we, we're, we're far beyond this notion of multiple gods and all of this kind of nonsense, well, the pluralism of the days of this psalmist may have been exchanged for relativism, but we are not much more advanced. In some of Barna's most recent research that he's done, this question was asked, the question was asked, if the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon are different expressions of the same spiritual truths, over half agreed, 56% of Americans Two-thirds of millennials agreed. In 1979, 70% of Americans agreed with the statement that God is the all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect creator of the universe who rules the world today. But by 2017, that number had dropped to 56%. 58% of teens, and listen to this, 62% of adults agreed with this statement. Many religions can lead to eternal life. There is no one true religion. One iGener, teenager, part of iGen or Gen Z, one of the participants in this survey said this, there is no such thing as truth, but there are facts. People can believe whatever truth they want. There is always room for truth to change. This isn't just something that is outside of the church. 57% of American adults agreed with the statement, whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth that you can know. 74% of millennials agreed with that statement. And listen to this, 41% of practicing Christians agreed or strongly agreed with that statement. Into the midst of all of that confusion and all of that relativity and all of that pluralism, the Word of God declares there is 
a God. And he's not undefined. He's not ambiguous. He's not just some being out there that we can try and grasp to maybe comprehend one day. No, the psalmist is very clear. There is a God, Elohim, and His name is Yahweh. He is the God who has revealed Himself. He is the God who has communicated who He is. And the ears of the Jewish people as they read this and as they sang this, that would have immediately connected them with the God who had revealed Himself in word and deed through His covenant with Israel. He was the God of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14 when Moses begs the question, who will I tell the people sent me? And he says to him, tell them I am who I am sent you. I am the existing one, as one author put it. God has revealed Himself. He's not ambiguous. He's not unknowable. He has revealed Himself. There is one true God. The London Baptist Confession puts it this way, and, and I'm going to read it because I couldn't come up with anything this smart, so bear with me. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose substance is in and of itself infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but Himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwells in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sins, the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, and withal most just and terrible in His judgments, hating all sin and who will by no means clear the guilty." Now, if that God is and that God exists, then the commands that are given make sense. You, you see, if, if God is God and He has revealed Himself, if He is really God, then He has the right, back up to verse 1, to say to you and to say to me, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. He has the right to command that of all of the earth. He has the right, and it is fitting for Him to say, serve the Lord with gladness and come into His presence with thanksgiving. It's all predicated upon the reality that God is God. Because if He's not, then it doesn't fit. Then it, then it, doesn't, it doesn't fit. In fact, we, you know, we've got the little... Christian joke, right? From verse 1, make a joyful noise to the Lord. That's for all of us who can't sing. And yeah, you can sound like a goose that's choking on a cracker while you sing. That's great. Make your joyful noise to the Lord. He loves that. That's not what it is. Don't miss the actual point. The idea here is a shout, a cry. It's connected with battle in, in throughout the Old Testament. So uh, as, as Israel makes their final lap around Jericho and they're commanded to shout, this is the word, it is a cry. It is a cry that only fits the right context and for the right person. 
We've all watched those movies, right? And you've got this huge army that's been amassed and they're, they're there in rank and file and they're getting ready to go out to battle and they're just waiting for their leader to get in front of them and give that inspirational speech and then call them into battle. And it fits if he does it and if he gives this rousing speech and raises his arm then there's this big battle cry and rah! And we charge. And But if the stable boy gets up there Hey guys, woo! It doesn't fit. It fits because of who that person is. And so, verse 1, make a joyful noise, shout, makes sense. Rejoicing with loud voices makes sense if the Lord is the Lord, if God is God and He's God over all the earth. The same is true with serving Him or coming into His presence. Imagine it this way. Imagine this afternoon you get a phone call and the person demands that you come to their house. Now, if that person happens to be somebody that you admire, a sports figure, a, a celebrity, an actor, an actress, a musician, and they say to you, they call you, and they say to you, hey, come to my house, your response is not going to be, oh, how dare you command that I come to your house? Well, who do you think you are? You come, no, you come to my house. This shows my age that this is still a phone. But. No, you would feel what? You would feel privileged. You would not go, hey, no, what, how, could, how could you dare command me to come to you? No, you would say, when, where, what do I wear? What time? Just tell me, I'm there. You would take so many pictures and so many selfies and plaster them all over the internet, whatever social media you use, and you would be delighted to do it. And none of your friends would go, oh, what a sellout. Can't believe that. Look at them hanging out with that celebrity. And they dared to take a selfie. I would never have gone. No, it would get more likes. You would get more people inquiring. What was it like? What were they like? What did you do? Why? All because of who that individual is. It would fit. You would be delighted to come. And here, this is all predicated on this very simple and yet incredibly profound truth that God is God. Yahweh is Elohim. And if He is Elohim, then He is worthy of our worship. He has the right as God to demand, to command our worship. And as the psalmist makes clear, which may not be as clear to us, he also has the right to command how we worship. You see, this command in verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness and come into His presence with singing, would have been very clear in the Jewish mind what was being communicated here. This word service is connected with worship and there was one place where you could come into the presence of the Lord and there was one place where it had been ordained that you serve Him in worship. That was in the temple. You see, if God is God and I'm not, then He not only is deserving of my worship, but He also gets to establish how I, I worship Him. He does not require to just say, well, whoever and however you will worship me, that's okay. It's all up to you. Come however you want. I'll just be glad you got here. 
No, he commands and has the right to command that he be worshipped in the ways that he chooses to be worshipped. And so the commands fit because God is God. Because he is who he says he is. Then shouting to him with a loud voice in joy fits. Then serving him with gladness makes sense then being welcomed into the presence of Almighty God is an easy thing to do with singing if indeed He is God. That's so simple. Has that, has that registered with you yet? That is so, so simple. And yet as I wrestled with these simple words on this page, these five simple verses this week, here's the reality that hit me hard and brought me to my knees and at many moments caused tears to well up in my eyes and led me to that song that we sang, God is always good to be in my office with my arms outstretched, singing, weeping, thinking about this reality that God is God. As Here's the deal. Remember, the title of this psalm is a psalm for giving thanks. And here's the reality, gang. Here's the, here's the world I live in. The world I live in is this, that I so many times struggle to be full of thankfulness Because instead I'm full of stress and I'm full of anxiety and I'm full of complaint and I'm full of anger and I'm full of bitterness because I am busy trying to be God over my own life. And I convince myself that thankfulness will come when all of my plans come together. My thankfulness will abound, my worship will abound to God when He gives me the things I keep asking Him to give me. When he understands the situation I'm in. God, don't you get it? I need this and I need this and I need that and I need this and I need that and I need this and I need that and I need this. And once you give me all those things, the more I see those things landing in place the way I want them to land in place, then, oh Lord, my heart will abound in worship to you and I will thank you and praise you. That is, of course, until I form my new list and then we'll begin all over again. I exhaust myself. Day in and day out. Going crazy. Trying frantically to be God over my life. And then I wonder, why am I so stressed? Why am I so anxious? Why isn't Thanksgiving flowing from my heart? Why, when Sunday morning comes, let's get real personal here, why when Sunday morning comes and that same bearded guy gets on stage and says, let's stand and sing, I'm like, no, I'd rather sit and say nothing. You don't know the week I've had. You don't know the wrestlings that are going on inside of me. think, no, I'll wait. I'll wait for that week when it all comes together. It's going to come together. I know it. It's just going to come together. It's beautiful what the psalmist said. It's, it's so simple. He says, it is He who made us. We are His. We are His people. Now, there is covenant language here. 
There's covenant language, and I think this is being understood at two different levels. Now, there are some who would take this psalm and quickly direct it totally towards Israel and and leave out all the earth. But I, I think the language is very clear. This is a call to all the earth. And God can both say to all the earth, I made you, you are my people, while at the same time looking at Israel and saying, in a whole new and different way, I have made you and you are mine. He can say to Israel, you are my people, I am your shepherd. But he can say to the entire world, I have not created a single human being I intended to try to be God of their life. You want to see a stressed out sheep? Find a sheep who's trying to be a shepherd. You want to see a sheep that struggles with anxiety? Complaint, bitterness, who's more prone to gossip than give praise? Find a sheep who has been made to be a sheep, but is frantically running around trying to control everything, is trying to play the role of a shepherd. And thinks that the moment of thankfulness, the moment of praise will arrive. It will all fall into place when his plans all fall into place. But here's this simple and very profound truth. It's that thankfulness abounds as I rest in the reality that I am a sheep and not the shepherd. Thankfulness abounds not as God adds to my already full plate, but thankfulness abounds not in me having, but in my recognition of my absolute lack and His total sufficiency and I rest I rest and my heart abounds in gratitude you are the shepherd and I rest in you it's so simple and yet so profound would you just could you just hear that this morning God is God Yahweh is Elohim. And you are not. And no matter how many things you create in your life to be thankful, no matter how many reminders you put on your phone, post-it notes you put on your fridge, I would argue with you this, that your thankfulness will run dry unless you acknowledge that God is God and you are not. And unless you find that great reservoir of praise that flows simply from the reality that you were never intended to be in control of your life, but to rest in the fact that He is. There is an unending reservoir of praise. There is this depth, there there is this profundity to that reality that for all that I lack, He is completely sufficient. I don't need to spend my life trying to hold it all together because I was never made to do it. I can rest in the one who is. Now, my very insufficiency becomes a source of praise for his all sufficiency. Isn't that incredible? Well, he doesn't stop there, he, he continues. 
He goes on to give more commands that we are to fulfill, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, give thanks to him, bless his name. And here's our next reason. It's so simple. For the Lord, that one Yahweh, who is Elohim, who is God, He is, He is good. He is good. Now, in the illustration that I I set up earlier, uh, if that actually happened, if in fact someone claimed authority over the entire world and no one could challenge that authority, no lawyer could argue against it, no military might could overcome it, we would immediately hope, pray, plead that whoever this individual is, was, that they would be what? Good. That they would be good. In fact, the pushback inside of us and the fear that we have about this notion of somebody controlling everything is because we've lived long enough to know what happens when wicked men get a lot of power. We have checks and balances in America. We have a constitution. We have term limits because we have never, no matter from what political party or what campaign they ran on, we have never had a good ruler. Not good like like this. Not good at this level. You may have seen, those of you who watch TV, I know most of you don't. You just spend your whole week reading your Bible. But for those of us who actually watch TV, you may have seen the AT&T commercials about things being okay, an okay cell phone network and how horrible that is. And comparing it to having an okay mechanic. I think I've found a lot of okay mechanics in my lifetime. An okay surgeon, right? Nobody wants to be operated on by the okay surgeon. That's awful. I know for some of us, it's a horror to think about having an okay cell phone network. But here's the reality. If we were to look down at our Bibles right now, and in verse 5 it says, For the Lord is... Eh, okay. Hey, four out of five people gave him a thumbs up. Just think for a moment the impact that would have on our lives. Think for a moment the devastation that would bring. The first concern in your morning, which it should be pretty close, about coffee, what would not be the first concern, the first concern would be, am I waking up to a good God this morning? The one who is all-powerful and has control of all things, is he in a good mood this morning? Can I trust him this morning? Will he be good to me this morning? Will he be faithful to his promises this morning? The psalmist assures us the truth is stated and it is not a truth that we ever want to change that the Lord is good. Now I know we can see goodness and we go, oh yeah, goodness, that's kind of abstract, that's out there, right? Goodness of God, it's this kind of smushy thing. This is not a feeling, it's, it's not an emotion because it's immediately followed up by these clarifying statements of this goodness. The Lord is good. How do I know He's good? Well, the psalmist clears that up by saying His steadfast love endures forever. 
his faithfulness to all generations. Now again, in the mind of a Jew, as they are singing this, as they are reading this, as they're hearing this, they are immediately going to connect this idea of steadfast love with God's covenant faithfulness. God's love towards Israel was not, His goodness towards them wasn't smushy and and hard to define and figure out. No, His goodness had shown up over and over and over and over again. It showed up in the fact that He picked a man named Abram who was an idol worshiper and not deserving of God's goodness. And He made a covenant with him. A covenant that was an unconditional covenant founded not upon Abraham's ability to remain faithful or Abraham's descendants' ability to remain faithful, but on the faithfulness of the very God who made the covenant in the first place. And on the backdrop of Israel's repeated unfaithfulness, what comes shining through? But the goodness of God over and over and over again. In fact, at the great deliverance of the Old Testament, God showing Himself, Yahweh, the one who talks to, to, to Moses in the wilderness at the burning bush, I am who I am, has just demonstrated that He is greater than all of the gods of the Egyptians in the way that He has delivered them out of the hands of this great world power. And of course, at that moment, right, the worship service, the spontaneous worship service that breaks out on the edge of the Red Sea, that worship service carries all the way through the wilderness. Right? Just keeps going all the way to Canaan. No. No, in fact, instead of giving God and continuing to give God the worship that He is due... Their mouths are full of complaint, grumbling against the Lord who has delivered them. In fact, you, if you do a search in your ESV Bible, you will not find the word thankfulness show up until it is commanded by God in Leviticus. As part of the peace offering. Thankfulness, the thank offering connected with the peace offering, fellowship offering, I have fellowship With God, therefore, I give thanks. God's goodness had been clearly displayed. It it was not something undefined. It was very clear. His steadfast love and His faithfulness. And as we read in the Psalms leading up to this, what does the psalmist make clear? That salvation was not just for Israel only. Don't misunderstand. Don't mistake God's faithfulness towards Israel as being to the exclusion of His faithfulness to the nations. No, the very reason that He entered into covenant with Abram was so that through Him He could do what? Bless the entire world. And so the psalmist declares, the whole world has seen your salvation. The whole world has seen your faithfulness. This whole world has seen your justice and your righteousness. We were, we've been there in Genesis. We've seen it. We've seen God's steadfast love and that He doesn't just destroy Adam and Eve. We see it again and that He saves Noah. We see it again and that at the Tower of Babel He doesn't just wipe everybody out. I'm sorry, Babel, whatever we're saying these days. 
And in fact, right on the heels of that tower and man trying to make a name for himself, he comes down and says he will make one man great and through him bless the entire world. God's steadfast love is there and it doesn't stop there. We know as we sit on this side of the cross that that steadfast love marches through all of time and history and persists and continues despite human unfaithfulness, despite the unfaithfulness of God's own chosen people and it marches His Son all the way to a cross where He would be put forward to be crushed for our iniquities. To take upon Himself the wrath of a holy God so that we might be welcomed in in fellowship for all who believe in Him. The goodness of God is not something that's undefined. It is very clear. But the reality is for us, I struggle with that. Can I be honest with you? I know I'm a pastor. I'm even going to seminary. That's supposed to put you on on another level. I've been a missionary. This is getting worse. I was a pastor's kid. That might be like a, a minus. That might take me in the other direction. But I, I believe that I came to saving faith in Christ at a very young age. I grew up in a Christian family. That kind of makes sense if my dad was a pastor. But we'll just and here at forty years old having seen so much of God's steadfast love poured out on my life, I confess to you that I struggle at times to believe that He is good. I have run to the same sins over and over again in my life. There are sins in my life I know are wrong. I mean, they're clear. Don't provoke your kids to wrath, once off. That's what my version says. It's there. It's in the Greek, trust me. And what do I do? I do it anyways. And when I do that, I know there's part of me that's saying, yes, God, I hear you. For 40 years you have been pursuing me with your steadfast love and proving to me your faithfulness. But just, just listen, God, in this one area, I'm not yet convinced that your commands are good for me, but rather they're trying to keep good from me. And so I'm, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to do this. question his goodness and then as I question his goodness I'm amazed that my heart does not abound in praise in thankfulness instead of reading his commands as his love to me to lead me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake I see them as him trying to keep good from me we shouldn't be shocked we might be shocked because if you're anything like me then you tend to esteem yourself much more highly than you ought. You think you're way beyond these things. There's a God and He's good. Yeah, I graduated from that class when I learned to color in the lines in Sunday school. But the reality is that these have plagued us going all the way back to our great-great-grandfather, Adam, who was in a garden surrounded by 
clear evidence that God is God because He had spoken everything into existence. He could see God's goodness all around Him because everything that God had made was nothing but good. Let's face it, men, He could behold a beautiful woman and be convinced, yes, the Lord, He is good. And in having all of that goodness around him, he listened to a serpent who came to him and said, are you sure God's the only one who's supposed to be God? Are you sure he didn't... He didn't make these commands to keep you from being like him? You you should really be your own God. Are you really sure God's commands are for your good? Are you sure He's not keeping from you this great privilege of ascending to His glory? Maybe you should take this fruit and you should eat it. And He did. And that lie is passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation so that you and I sit here today And if we're honest with ourselves, we still wrestle to accept the simple fact that God is God and we are not and to trust in His goodness. And the psalmist calls us to this reality and says, listen, this is a psalm for giving thanks. This is where a reservoir of praise lies. This is where our hearts will respond naturally and appropriately to God as we simply trust and believe in these two simple yet incredibly profound truths that Yahweh is Elohim and He is always good. My encouragement for us this morning is not that we find something new and profound that we've never seen before. It's not that we start some new regiment. Yes, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to spend some summertime in the Psalms and I'm going to put post-it notes everywhere and alerts on my phone and put everything. I mean, I'm going to go thankful crazy and do all of these things. That's what's really going to motivate me. I'm going to beat this into my life. Here's what I would, I've been praying for you and I would plead with you that we, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, would just grow in faith in the simple reality that God is God and He is good. Because as we press into that and we lean into that, we will understand and we will respond with a heart not full of just emotion, but a heart that is geared and was created to give to its Creator the praise that He is due. When we went to Senegal, we... um, We were put out of our comfort zone in a lot of ways, right? You go to a country that lives in poverty. And when we would gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ to worship, there were a lot of songs that they sang. There were a lot of hymns that we sing here that have been translated into French or into Wolof. And they would sing them and there were ones that they liked and they would sing with. But there was this simple song that they would sing over and over and over and over again. 
And there came a point for me where it kind of repulsed me. I I, I got sick of it. And part of it was because I had this self-righteous idea that these simple repetitive songs were foolishness. But I can remember there sweating profusely in our little church and hearing them begin to sing Yalabakna. God is good. And watching the way those simple words would connect with the mamas who were there. Nothing got their feet moving like the simple song, God is good. They'd start moving. They'd start that little shuffle. When it was really hot, that's all you got was a shuffle. Because any other movement and you were pouring sweat and it was way too much. A little shuffle. And they actually made joyful noise to the Lord. They, sh- they would shout to God as they repeated this simple truth over and over again. God is good. God is good. He is good to me. I remember being out in the village. I mean, like in an oven. Cinder block walls, tin roof probably over a hundred degrees outside and you're just baking in there and they would start singing yala bakna yala bakna yala bakna lochi man and I'd look at them and they had nothing you'd see these these mamas begin to dance and, and they don't even know where they're going to get enough money to buy rice to make chibujin for dinner that night They might have a sick kid at home and they can't afford to take him to the local clinic, much less afford the medicine that the doctor would prescribe. They have so little. Their lives are so empty in so many ways, but yet they had come to understand this profound truth that thankfulness did not come from having abundance. Thankfulness comes as I sink into and rest into and trust in a sovereign God who is good. And so they would sing and so they would dance. And they taught me a profound lesson. That I had much to learn about the goodness of God. And not just that God was good, not just that He was out there somewhere, but that He was good to me. He's good to me. The reality is, is that as we struggle with this, let me, let me say these two things and, and I'll stop. One, can I encourage us this morning that if you're like me and you're willing to say you struggle with these simple truths, then can we commit to this being a place where people are allowed to struggle and be encouraged? Can we commit to the fact that in this place, we will not judge those who come limping in on Sunday morning, wrestling to believe still that God is good because of what's going on in their lives or because of what's not going on in their lives? Could we be okay just to sit there with them in their struggles, I think we can do that. And I think that the church is intended to be one of those places where God's steadfast love and faithfulness shows up. And here's the other thing, and I'll I'll finish with this. Here's the beauty of this. (laughs) Is that if my praise is connected to my ability to remain in 
faithful, my ability to persist enough, my ability to be good enough, my ability to praise God enough, then, then it will always be frustrating and it will never work out. But my hope, my confidence is not anchored to my faithfulness. The whole psalm is anchored on these two realities of, of God's sufficiency. My confidence is not that I will ever arrive to the point where I worship Him enough, where I can praise Him enough, where I can be good enough. The whole psalm is anchored on the reality that God is good and that is my hope. He is good. He is good. And He is good to me. The testimony of my life will never be that I've arrived at a point that I've orchestrated things enough, that I've cleaned it up enough, that I deserve that goodness. In fact, the more I understand His goodness and the more I understand His greatness, the more inconsistent it seems to be that He would ever be good to me. But my confidence is that the truth is unchanging and that God has declared He is God in the heavens and He is good. And His faithfulness endures to all generations. And so I bank my praise on that. And I rest in that. And I sink into that. I press into that. Because God is good. It is His goodness that is the foundation of my praise. Not mine. But His. And I find there reservoirs of unending praise and thankfulness to God. God is good, friends. God is. Just grab that. God is. And I know some of you are going through all kinds of stuff and there's a lot going on I don't even know about. But I can tell you this, He is good. And He is good to you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for your revealed word. I thank you that we're not left to imagine that there's a God or hope that there's a God, but you have clearly communicated that you exist and you have communicated the type of God that you are. We rejoice in the fact that you are good. Help us, Father, because our faith at times is, is misplaced. It's put in ourselves. It's, it's put in others around us. It's put in our ability to pull things together. Help us, Lord, to put our faith in You and in You alone and help us to just rest in these realities that You are God and we are not. We are sheep. You are the shepherd and the trust that You are good. Thank You for these simple reminders this morning. May Your Spirit work them into our hearts and lives. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.